0: Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our equipped ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, Uh, mbcgrimes.org. This is a rich person's house, so at least like a very, very upper middle class, even that's anachronistic. They don't really have low class, middle class, upper class in the Roman Empire, but uh, definitely someone of means, would have this size of a house. They would have uh, multiple servants probably in that household as well. And that's a good reminder when you talk about like, the book of Acts, talks about baptizing, let's say, Cornelius and his household. You know, modern-day people want to read immediately like infants and children and so on into that concept. But in the ancient world, household could uh, definitely refer to other adult members of a household, such as servants or slaves and um, if you compare, like Acts 16, it talks about in Lydia's case baptizing her household. But in context, it also directly says she and her household believed. So that you know that would be true if someone is able to process uh, the gospel cognitively and put their faith in Christ. So that's one thing. Um, Pastor Lance had mentioned after my talk last time that uh, Maranatha does have um, kind of a—it's not a program—sounds really official, but a means by which older teens kind of walk their way through our church documents, and I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. It's a great idea, so. Well, they're just invited, once they turn, I think, 15 or 16, they're invited to our membership class, and uh, given the opportunity to go through that process of kind of uh, recognizing their own membership in the church. Right, so they can more like, committedly, like, I'm covenanting with this group, I understand what I'm doing. Uh, because often what happens, I mentioned last time, at Baptist churches, because the way the constitution works, is you have someone. I think I gave the example. You know, they make a profession of faith, they're baptized, they're nine years old. It says when they turn 18, they become a voting member. So it just kind of happens, but they don't really think their way through what they're covenanting with. So it's a great idea. So thank you to the pastoral staff for thinking of their way through that and working with that. Uh, someone in my small group had a question about my just off the side comment that in the early church, it doesn't seem like often. Uh, You hear stories about someone in coming to Christ, like specifically uh, praying a prayer. So um, just kind of explain what I mean by that. And if you have questions, um, you can let me know. But that's actually kind of true throughout most of church history. So uh, today, if we have time, we'll get to Augustine. And Augustine, like the way he would tell a story is that he senses that he should pick up the book next to him and start reading. And it's a Bible. which tells he's already been reading the Bible, right? I mean, it's next to him. And it comes to Romans, and it talks about how put off uh, the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's been battling sin in his life, and he's trying to seek a solution. This has been going on for months and months and months. And so he reads that, and he says, and it's like the light came on, and I put off uh, the old, and I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the way he would talk. Um, If you get to, let's just say other famous people, so Luther, in his tower experience, he's struggling with, he's angry at God. Because the righteous of God means God's righteous, and he's against sin. So how do I deal with that? And he talks about, he's reading through Romans 1, and it's like, oh, wow. Um, It says the righteous of God is revealed in the gospel, which means good news. So the good news is that God is righteous, and it's the power of God. And he's like, well, wait a minute, that's good news, not just bad news. So what does that mean? And he concludes it means that God's righteousness is given to him. So in context, it talks about the just shall live by faith. So he comes with this conclusion of being justified by faith there in the, um, in the uh, parapet or the tower. Uh, if you think, of, say, a John Wesley, he's actually um, in a service, and someone's reading through Luther's um, preface to the commentary on Galatians. And he just says, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt like I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation from sin and forgiveness of sin, and eternal life. And we talk in those ways. If you read like Spurgeon, he would say, It's a very snowy day, and um, so he can't go to his regular church, so he goes to a, um, there's a, a term, a very type of method, primitive Methodist church within walking distance. The pastor couldn't make it because of the snow, so a layperson is preaching. Preacher from Isaiah, from the text, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And this lay preacher can't get much beyond that. He just keeps repeating over and over again, look to me and be saved, look to me and be saved. Um, but Spurgeon says God used that in his life. And the way he says, like, if I could tear up my eyes and throw them at the speaker, or actually to Christ beyond the speaker, but I would have, I was looking with all my might to the Lord Jesus Christ and um, looking to him in trust, etc. So that's what I mean by that is it's, it is not at all wrong to pray. In coming to Christ, in fact, you could actually make an argument. It's a natural thing to do, uh, because the Bible talks about out of the heart the mouth speaks, and you think of Romans chapter ten that with the heart one believes and with the mouth uh, one confesses, etc. And in context, to compare what that means, and it's talking about whoever calls the name of the Lord. So confessing appears to be toward Christ, toward Jesus, um, or toward God, the Lord, in some sense of the Trinity, and uh, appealing to to God. For salvation, So you could actually make a statement that it's natural for that to happen. Um, but you'd also not want it to make it as if it's a magical sacrament or something like that. Like, here's this magical formula you have to say, so I think you also need to be careful. But I don't want to, I, I, uh, I would, uh, what's the word, pass it over to Pastor Lance as the pastor, if you have any, because I'm not kind of cause any problems. I'm just trying to explain historically how what that looks like, um, that sometimes what we assume in the modern world um, isn't true across church history. There's actually good facets to that because it reminds us the focus is the gospel outside of us. Um, So I don't know if you have any questions or comments about that. I'll give you a concrete example how that may be helpful. I was in a new member's class out in Illinois one time and the lady was hearing testimonies of others and she's like, I didn't realize you could be saved without walking an aisle. In her mind, that's how you get saved. And as a story, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, um, the early church, there aren't aisles, <laughs> there aren't pews. So for, you know, for a couple centuries, no one's getting saved because there aren't aisles to walk. Um, that is one form of expressing your faith in Christ is to do such a thing. So I know there's some people who maybe overreact the other way. They don't want to you know, talk about any type of um, request for for lack of a better term, external manifestation of faith, etc. So I'm not trying to argue that way either. Um, but uh, the heart of it, as Romans 10 stresses, is the heart. So with the heart, one believes unto Christ. Any other questions you had from last time or any other thoughts or anything else I could try to help with? Okay, yes? So uh, the thief on the cross Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting even to compare when we do have prayers, as it were, in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul's on the Damascus Road, the thief on the cross, and so obviously there's not like a magical formula, right? I mean, what they're doing is they're expressing. In that case, the thief on the cross is literally expressing to someone who's I don't know how many yards away, but I mean, Jesus Christ is literally there in his case, um, and of course it's also um, an important illustration that's used in historical debates about those who demand, like, sacraments, for example. The thief on the cross does not undergo a sacrament at that point on the cross. He simply um, looks to Christ um, in faith, and out of that flows naturally his, his prayer to him. So it's a good example. Do you, do you think he was just convicted when he was right there on the cross, or do you think he might have heard Jesus before? So that, that's a good question. Like I don't know if I know the full answer. I mean, those who... Like, say, a Lutheran approach would be like, well, he already was baptized earlier in a John the Baptist ministry. Uh, But there's nothing about that, of course, in the Bible. So it's not stressed by any means in that way. If you compare the synoptic Gospels, if you don't have Luke, so all you have is the other ones, and you piece it together, what would you know? So you know from John that there's two thieves, Christ is in the middle. You know from Matthew and Mark that it actually stresses both thieves are mocking Christ. Um, and we're we're talking within hours of Christ dying at the end, mocking him. And it stresses both thieves. Luke is the only gospel that talks about and one of them, towards the end, had a change of heart and you know cried out to Christ. It doesn't fully explain what caused I mean, there's both the theological, you know, idea of the Holy Spirit's at work. Um, you'd also wonder if like he's watching how Christ dies in the manner, and so he's like, wow, this is different, you know, this is not some criminal who's been hiding from the Roman Empire. Um, who's doing that, so we don't know the fullness of that. In a sense, that whole, um, I'm going to say story, but I mean like true story, that whole narrative is one of the most amazing illustrations of grace because you have someone who's mocking Christ while Christ is bearing the sins of the world on him. At that very moment, he's mocking Christ, and yet he's able to turn, uh, through God working with him and in him, turn to Christ and have no, like, post-conversion works to bring to God, like, okay, at least I did, you know, this, you know, t- two years worth of life change before you, right? It's just an amazing statement of God's grace. Um, so, in that sense, I think that's, that's what the purpose of Luke. I mean, if you look at Luke's gospel, it's stressing, it use the word sinner more than any other gospel of the synoptics. It uses savior more than the other synoptic gospels. And so, like, Luke stresses the lost prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. And here you have someone who's lost even on the cross, uh, berailing Christ at the very end, yet Christ is gracious even to him. So, uh, good, uh, good point, good illustration. Anything else from last week you wanted to add? Okay, um, Pastor Lance, if you don't mind bringing up set four, and then I believe we, I know we had gone through Diocletian, we had gone through. Early Constantinian stuff, and we we're telling the account of Constantine at the battle, of the Milvian Bridge, et cetera. So, we kind of need to pick that up. Perfect, thank you. So, we were kind of in Constantine's career. We had talked about the battle, and then he saw whether it's a vision or a dream or a sign or made it up, whatever <laughs> the case is. Uh, he puts Christian symbolism on the war material, marches in the battle, he wins. So, that was to enter into Rome. So, now he's conquered the western part of the empire. So, if you remember what we were looking at there, uh, we had this map. And so if you think in terms of Constantine now is in control of this part, right, the western part, but he's not satisfied with that. He wants to conquer the eastern part as well, and he will go ahead and do that, and he will become the sole lone emperor of the entirety of the Roman Empire. And he will broadcast what's called the Edict of Milan, which is a statement of freedom. And it is um, a statement of freedom for all members of the Roman Empire, that they are free to worship their god or gods as they see fit. In fact, it's really fascinating. At that point, although he mentions Christians directly, he mentions that they've been you know, persecuted and now they're free to worship God. He doesn't stop there, though. He actually mentions everyone is free to worship God. So it's actually talking about this in a, another context this morning. And if you think of like a pendulum swing, so the pendulum's over here. Christians are being persecuted by the Roman Empire, the pendulum's swinging. So now you come like point center and with Constantine, Oedip, and Lon, you have freedom for everyone. So true religious liberty, which earlier Christian authors, like Tertullian comes up with the term, by the way, religious liberty. Um, he's a Christian author from around the year 200. And Lactantius had talked about it. So now we're at center. Everyone has liberty. But it doesn't stop there. The pendulum keeps swinging. So by, you know, 280s, 290s, it's more common um, for Christian emperors to be persecuting or oppressing non-Christians. So you get things like them oppressing Jews and being okay with people burning down synagogues, uh, closing down Plato's Academy because it's a, you know, a pagan philosophy academy, uh, burning all the hundreds of thousands of books in the Alexandrian library, which you know, librarians to this day bemoan the fact that this happened there in the 4th century. So the pendulum has swung over here, and pretty soon the emperors are persecuting non Trinitarians. So, even people who would say that they're Christian, and we would say they're not biblically, we'll give an example of heresies in a moment who don't believe Jesus Christ was really God, uh, they, they're using the power of the sword to, um, to persecute them, to suppress them. So, it's not really much time of a balance of religious liberty. And some historians would say you don't have the fullness of religious liberty in the West in a concrete space and time until 1600's Rhode Island. So for the next you know, 1,300 years, you have people persecuting each other. Um, so you have that throughout you know, the Catholic Inquisition, Crusades. You have that through the magisterial reformers. By that, I mean those tied to magistrates. So the reformer tied to prince or to, or to city council, so like Calvin and Geneva or Luther and Wittenberg. They were tied to the state. And they're using the state, uh, at least they're okay with the state suppressing uh, heresy through political means. So as it said, uh, religious liberty is the cry of the underdog. So when you're persecuted, suddenly you talk more about religious liberty. <laughs> when you're a majority group with power, you don't tend to talk about it much. And I don't know, many of you would, I would say in my lifetime, I've seen that in my lifetime. Suddenly Christians talk a lot, and they listen to lots of news uh, news programs about religious liberty, why? Because we feel more and more marginalized and suppressed. But, you know, the question is, is it principled? Is it like we really believe it, even if other people are being suppressed for the religious beliefs? or so is it just because we feel suppressed? So those are good things to consider. Well, uh, we probably should move forward, and let's talk about Arius and Arianism. So here we have a picture of Constantine burning Arian books in um, this little illustration there to the right-hand side. So here is, who is this Arian person? Well, he is an elder down in Alexandria in Egypt. And the way this has happened is that Constantine has come out Christian, whatever that means to him, and however the depth and reality of that is. Whatever that is, we'll let God sort that out. Uh, but Constantine says, I'm a Christian, and I you know, put the Christian symbol on all the war material. We won. This is great. Let's all become Christians. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, What does it mean to be a Christian? Because I'm trying to unify the empire and Christianity, but now I'm beginning to realize there are differences between these people who call themselves Christians. It would be like someone today um, saying, you know, let's make America a Christian nation. And then you have to decide, like, who defines it? Like, if Glenn Beck defines it, he's a Mormon, right? If you have a Roman Catholic define it, what does that mean? If you have an evangelical define it, what does that mean? So sometimes things seem simple until, like, you get the details. Like, oh, well, who fits? Who fits the box? Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian? And he's troubled because he's kind of put his political, you know, clout on the line, like, Christianity is the new uh, religion that will be at least uh, freeing, and kind of supporting. I mentioned how he's supporting monetarily the copying of Bibles, the rebuilding of churches, etc. But there's this elder down in, in Alexander named Arius, and he does not believe Jesus Christ is eternal, and he does not believe he's fully God. And so the kind of the way he got there, uh, a couple ways, but one way seems to have been he reads Jesus Christ in a Proverbs 8, you know, how wisdom was with God, and wisdom was there when God created the world. So Sophia, which is actually a feminine word in the Greek. But um, he says, I think that's the logos, the word of John 1. And Proverbs 8 directly says um, that wisdom was there when God created everything else. Um, after wisdom was created, though. And so he's like, okay, so Jesus Christ is a created being, And then he creates everything else. So you have Jesus, who's the first of all creations. So he's higher than anything else in the world. He's higher than animals, humans, plants, stars. He does create everything else, but he is a created being. So if he's a created being, that means he's not eternal, by definition, because he starts in time. And also means he's not really divine, because being eternal is an attribute of being divine. So he's not really divine. And they're quite good marketers. So uh, you have these Aryans going around the streets of Alexandria singing little tunes, little ditties. And we don't know anymore what what the sound was, partly because they don't have modern staffs, you know, musical staffs in the ancient world. It would be really hard to reconstruct what music sounds like in the ancient world. Um, But just to make up a sound here, but we know some of the words, like, there was a time when he was not. And they're talking about Jesus Christ. And they're trying to get their theology across by getting people to sing songs. And that in itself is actually kind of a lesson that songs are a wonderful way of conveying theology, of getting people to think through theology. And it gets so bad in Alexandria that they're getting into like verbal fights and maybe sometimes fisticuffs in, like, in the open market area. So like you have the Aryans. He is not eternal. He is eternal. He's not eternal. He is eternal. Uh, he was created. He's not created. And so there's fights going on and so Constantine decides, how did I get myself into this? <laughs> I thought I was getting into a unified religion, and now I here that there's all these outbreaks. So he calls um, all the leaders, which by this time are called bishops, to a small, I guess you could almost like a suburb, to use modern terminology, near the capital city of Constantinople, named after him. But a small city called Nicaea, and um, he calls them together, there's over 300 of them, Sometimes you'll see without the middle A, depending on how you want to spell it, but he calls them together. And there's these wonderful stories about how this looks. You have bishops who are missing an eye or missing a limb because they've been under persecution, and now they're being brought by the emperor himself uh, to be like wined and dined and sat down as a council and to decide this major issue, right? And so the council does meet. They listen to a couple of what we would call local church confessions of faith. They're like, okay, what does your church say? What does your church say? What does your church say? And in the end, uh, the majority decides that you have to say and believe, or you have to believe at least, that Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the Father. He's the very same essence of the Father. Um, so, sorry for the word usage, but it's kind of hard to illustrate without doing it. So, you have homoousios, okay? So, usios is essence or substance. Homo is of the same. And there are some others who are like, ah, I don't know if I can say that. I want to say his homoousios, he is similar to the Father. But he's not exactly like the Father in his essence or substance. So, it's kind of like, here's the Father, like first-tier God. Here's Jesus Christ, like second-tier God. So he's like the Father, but he's not exactly equal with the Father. And the majority are like, no, he is completely equal with the Father. And so they end up putting forth a creed called the Nicene Creed. And there are churches to this day who will quote the Nicene Creed in church services. um, Both more sacramental, well, all kinds of very sacramental type churches will have it quoted. But it it runs the gamut from Catholic to Orthodox to Presbyterian to Lutheran. I should probably flip that in terms of spectrumizing, but Lutheran and Presbyterian. Uh, would uh, recite the Nicene Creed. Normally they're reciting, though, a creed that was revised about, so 325 to 381, you could do the math, 56 years later um, it was revised, but it stresses how Jesus Christ is fully God, just like the Father. And then it has a words like God from very God, light from very light. And so you know, the, the way they're thinking the way through this is he's the only begotten from the Father, and they would say that's eternal. It's not like a point in time. That's the whole arius debate, right? It's not a point in time that he's begotten from the Father. It's eternal generation from the Father. So it's never been a case where he did not exist. And then uh, light from light. In their, in their sense, if I had uh, two... What did I do with my writing? Okay, here we go. So if you have like a candle, and you have another candle, and you kind of dip in this candle... Well, look, yeah, Christmas Eve is at Maranatha Baptist Church. So you have a flame... The other candle captures the flame. This flame is just like this flame. You know, it's it's the very same thing. It's kind of what they're getting at. So, light from light. But they're tapping into biblical language uh, to do all that. So, at this point, you may be saying, like, who cares? Well, first of all, it's really important Jesus Christ is fully God. That's really important for theology. So, what would be some reasons in your mind that it's really important that Jesus Christ is fully God? He's not like a second tier God who's. Like a great human being, but created, or why is it really important that he's fully God in theology? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. To be an appropriate substitute for us? Yeah, so if he's uh, a substitute, he has to be fully man to die, but he also has to be fully God to conquer death and to be completely holy and perfect and not dying for his own sins. Um, and uh, to omnipotently die for humanity, etc. There's all kinds of reasons. It's important that even for the sake of salvation, he's completely God. Um, this is why, like, we quoted Romans 10 earlier tonight, but who is first call upon the name of the Lord is actually quoting Joel chapter 2. If you look it up in Joel 2, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And what does that mean in the Old Testament? If It's all caps. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. So Jesus Christ is actually called Yahweh, or Jehovah. He's God in that salvation text. Um, and by the way, it's the same thing that Peter does in Acts 2. He quotes the same text in his evangelistic um, message, I guess you would say, to the Jews there in Acts chapter 2. So it's really important he's fully God. Also because if you're worshiping Jesus, uh, which you know, the New Testament talks about, And even remember last week, Pliny sends in spies and they they talk about the Christians worshiping Jesus. But if he's not fully God, strictly speaking, that's idolatry. Anytime you worship someone that's not the God, right, that's idolatry. So that's a problem. All right, so that's kind of some examples of why it's important. Are there any modern Aryans in the world today who believe Jesus Christ is a created being who created all other things, but himself was created at a point in time. Hold that thought. Jehovah's Witnesses are the clearest example, right? Jehovah's Witnesses have even changed the translation of the New Testament. So when it comes to John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was God, the New World Translation, that's their translation, says in the beginning was A, God, small g. Um, and so they've actually changed the translation. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. The Word was with God. The Word was with God, the Word was a God. When it comes to Colossians 1, they have inserted the word other multiple times. So, it talks about Jesus Christ is the reflection of God the Father, um, and by Him all things were made, uh, whether visible or invisible, etc. Colossians 1, in their translation, says, by Him all other things were made. And it adds the word other. A couple times in Colossians 1. Because it's leaving open their view, he himself was created. He just created everything else afterward. So actually, it's, Arianism is alive and well um, in modern, I wouldn't say church life. I don't know if that's fair, but modern religious life, we'll put it that way. Um, any questions about Arius or Arianism or how that panned out? Um, I mentioned that 56 years later they come back to that same creed, and they kind of develop it even further. So strictly speaking, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed. We simply call it the Nicene Creed. Any questions? All right. Um, So that's the story of the Council of Nicaea and its creed. I didn't hit that button quick enough, but in 325 is the date here. Um, You can see a picture, it's it's a later illustration, but you can see Constantine in the middle, you can see all these dozens of bishops surrounding him. Uh, I think most historians would say that Constantine himself isn't um, running the show. So if you're afraid, like, well, maybe Constantine is, like, making all this happen, and he's like the emperor, he's making it happen, he's making them say Jesus Christ is God. Uh, That's not true, because he knows he's not trained in all this. So he brings them together, they talk, they hash it out. Uh, They do end up excommunicating some who don't believe this. As a side note, this might be helpful to someone. Um, There are a a couple people who are like, but that word, homoousias, isn't found in the Bible. So how can you make us bind ourselves to a statement that includes a word that's not found in the Bible? And the response among those who believe Jesus Christ is full of God is like, well, the problem is that these other people say they believe the Bible, So how do we out them? I mean, how do we, like, draw the line when we don't think they really believe the Bible? They say they do, but they don't. So we've got to come up with a way of explaining the Bible that we think is faithful to Scripture, the kind of, like, they know they can't in good faith sign it. By the way, that's, that's true of various terms in theology throughout history. The word trinity is not found in the Bible. The word inerrancy is not found in the Bible. There are various terms that are really important for theology that are not directly found in the Bible, But they kind of arise because you're fighting people who don't believe stuff that's in the Bible. So that may be something to take away from it. Um, And then, let's see, what else would I want to mention about this? So creeds are used early on for uh, worship purposes, to recite creeds and worship services, um, to catechize, to teach new converts about what Christian belief is. Uh, Creeds are also used polemically to kind of argue with other people, um, and they're used as... Confessions of faith and liturgy or worship, which is its own debate. Um, there are some Baptists who use or recite creeds in worship services. Traditionally, most Baptists don't. Um, you won't find a Bible verse that tells you you can or can't do something like that. So there are some Baptists that say we want to be you know sure we're rooted in the history of Christianity um, and say and do that by reciting a creed. Some of the early Baptists were like the problem is. If in the liturgy, to use that term that we don't use, <laughs> um, although I would guarantee you that we're liturgical socially. I can almost tell you what our liturgy is. This is not meant at all to be negative. So you welcome people, two songs, scripture reading, pastoral prayer, two songs, sermon, close. We actually have a liturgy. Um, we, we do something the same way. Some of you are really liturgical because you sit, sit in the same seat every week, right? <laughs> so socially, you're habitual. Um, Although, you know, we wouldn't say you have to do it that way, so we wouldn't go that far with that. But um, some Baptists say the problem with having everyone rise and then recite a creed is that you could just cause hypocrisy, like, you know, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. but they don't really believe it. That's a good point. How far do you go with that though? Because then some early Baptists 1600s, are like, well, wait a minute. But we ask everyone to stand and sing. So it's like my faith has found a resting place. Verse three, and then you sing verse three, and like, but if they don't really believe it, is that coercive? And so some Baptists actually moved away from congregational singing. It's, it's, it's showing you how seriously they're taking voluntary worship, though. Like it's got to come from the heart to be true worship. It can't be because your parents, it can't be because the church. It's really got to come from you. So I would personally appreciate the sentiment, but you know, wonder you can't take it too far. It would be my personal view, um, and we can leave to the side the whole question of use of creeds for the moment. Um, Later, imperial developments, let's see what time it is, uh, 36 after. So um, later, they'll keep on hashing out this whole idea of who Jesus Christ is. So let me give you a term up here. The word for that doctrine is Christology, so that's the study of who Jesus Christ is. The study of Christ, or the Messiah, is Christology. And so Nicaea nails down, he's both fully God and fully man. But then they're going to wonder about that. So then what does all that mean? So just for fun, I'm not going to mention names afterwards or anything like that. So this is just, maybe you won't find it fun. I don't know. But I've done this in multiple contexts, and it's meant to be fun. And once again, I won't mention any names, et cetera. But if you can all close your eyes, and you're going to have two options here. Option one is that in the case of Jesus Christ, his divinity fills a human body, so like an incarnation, his divinity fills the human body, but he does not have a human soul or spirit. So his divinity, his deity, animates the body. That's what animates him and makes him a person who can think and have emotions and will and all that. That's option one. Option two is that his divinity, his deity, is united with not only a body, human body, but also a human soul and spirit. So that's option two. All right, so with your eyes still closed, how many of you vote for option one? So Jesus Christ is deity, deity, divinity, fills a body. Okay? How many of you vote for option two? How many of you don't want to vote? <laughs> all right, you can open your eyes. We had, uh, we had people vote for all three, and uh, this is a good example of, I think, what I mentioned like two weeks ago that if we don't argue about certain things in our circles, we don't think as deeply about them, right? So it's probably more likely in our circles to get into debates about the timing of the tribulation, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, issues of Calvinism, Arminianism. Really rare, it seems to me, in our circles for people to debate Trinity and hypostatic union. Part of it is because across the spectrum of Christianity, um, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox so even though we have strong disagreements with other groups on other issues, on paper we agree on these things. Uh, because we all agree that Nicaea is right, for example. So if you're interested in what the solution is by the 400s, so like 450, there's another council called the Council of Chalcedon that's going to deal with some of the things we just rose our hands about. Uh, they come to the view that he actually does have a human spirit and human soul, as well as a human body. Now let me explain why. Uh, Because I don't part part of it. To be fair, is the word incarnation simply means in the flesh, like carn carnation, like a carnivore eats fleshly things, eats meat. So I can understand why you'd be thinking deity in the meat, like deity in the flesh. And John one says, you know, the word became flesh. It doesn't say the word became flesh and soul and spirit, right? John one just stresses flesh. However, um, first of all, there are some texts that talk about the soul and spirit of Christ. So, can anyone think of a text in Scripture where it mentions either his soul or his spirit? At the crucifixion, it says he gave up his spirit. Right At the very end, it is finished. He gives up his spirit. So, that's a great one for the spirit. For the soul in Gethsemane, it says he's anguished in his soul. And there's uh, one or two others like that. So, there are texts that talk about this. But big picture what we call systematically, Um, these people thinking about these things aside, that he cannot redeem what he does not subsume. So let me explain that. If Christ is only the business of saving bodies, it's enough that he takes on a body. But if he's in the business of saving human beings, he has to be fully 100% human. That includes not only a body, but a soul and a spirit. Everything that you are as a human, he takes on. Now, it's important, remember, he takes it on that he's fully a person, he's a divine person, before he's a human. So, in other words, he takes on a second nature, but he's already fully a person with one nature, takes on a second nature, and now we have one person, two natures. And that's the language they'll stress at Chalcedon. They'll say it's without mixing it. You don't get a third thing. It's not like, you know, get a lion, a tiger, get a liger, or however that works. Um, It's not like you get a human and divine and you get a huvine or something like that. He is 100% human, 100% divine, uh, because he can only redeem what he takes on. Um, And this is a reminder that even sometimes we talk about soul winning, for example. Sometimes the word soul in in the Bible actually means like the full human person, by the way. So to be fair to that, like 1 Peter 3 says that the ark, that Peter brought in, I think it says, eight souls into the ark. It doesn't mean like, okay, leave bodies behind on the walkway and eight souls walk in. It just means eight human beings, right, are rescued in the ark. Um, So in that sense, it's fine. But I do think sometimes as Christians, we downplay the body. The body's important. It's important to who we are. And it's important because Jesus Christ himself took on a human body. But furthermore... The resurrection reminds you that Jesus Christ has guaranteed a future embodiment for us. We're not going to be bodiless creatures for eternity. And this actually can be really comforting. Like in, in my case, when I, I was just at my father's house uh, this afternoon for lunch. And um, i can give you more details later. Is this like being, yes. it is being uh, not only recorded and live streamed, but saved? Live stream and saved. Okay. So I'll just briefly, my dad is struggling uh, with very strong dementia. Um, it's not Alzheimer's, it's NHP, it's called. So he's you know, not all there. And, but it's a great reminder of someone who you know, was a professor and had all the students' names memorized before they even showed up to class, like before they even came on campus. He had all 100 freshmen memorized by face before they came. And now he doesn't remember my name, right? and I'm his son. But it's, it's a comforting encouragement that he's going to get a new body, a glorified body. And um, so that's a good thing. All right, that's the end of uh, three. Anyone, or four, I guess it is. Let me count four. (laughs) Anyone have any questions about that? Okay. If not, um, we're going to move on to five. Um, I had a little game thing, but I think I'd rather spend time just getting to the content... Rather than doing a little game activity, we can do the game activity next week if that still fits. So, um, number five here is oops, I'm going the wrong way is going to be famous figures of late patristics. That's what you have in front of you. And I think I have like eight or nine of these. It's going to be a whirlwind. We're not going to cover them all probably in 15 minutes, but we'll carry over next week. Um, Side note. I think you all know this, but there are fasts of how I'm teaching these six weeks that aren't true of how one teaches youth. So does that make sense? So, if You think, like, this guy's really boring. This is how he teaches youth. Um, you always think about your context, and you think about you know, what's fitting for the context and how does one teach, et cetera. Uh, but they can be pushed far more than one thinks. If they're taking calculus and chemistry and physics, they can actually learn Bible and theology in ways that people may not first uh, consider. But in any case, uh, Eusebius is our first major figure here, and I have a picture of a title page of his work on ecclesiastical history, on church history. He's actually a friend of Constantine. Interestingly enough, at, um, at the Council of Nicaea, at first, he's kind of like on the fence, kind of a guy, like well, I don't know, do I really want to say he's like fully God, homoousias, but he kind of reads the room and he ends up landing here, brings up some questions perhaps, uh, but he's a great friend with Constantine, he ends up writing a biography of Constantine that's very um, praising of him in ways that you know don't really talk about, maybe some of the negative sides. And he also, though, he writes a church history that is probably the most important document to reconstruct from the year 100 to year 325. So it's really important. Uh, we have corroborating evidence, but a lot of what we have is going to have to come through that. And at that point, it could raise questions like, how reliable is he? Which is just a question of history in general, for that matter. And we have documents from the past, but you know, how, how true are they? But I would say, in general, that he is historically reliable. I'm not trying to say he's inerrant or infallible or anything like that. But I think, in general, he's a generally reliable. And so he writes a really important church history. Athanasius is another one here. And so by the way, like the icon on the right, that's much later than his life. So that's not from his time period. He's from the 300s. A side note, what is an icon? It's a two-dimensional piece of art in Eastern Orthodoxy that they would use in worship. So they don't worship the icon. So it's not like they're you know, worshiping an object, but they would say it's a window to peer behind the icon to transcendent or you know, spiritual realities. Um, even having said that, though, I think most of us would say, well, it's still kind of problematic in my view because this is a human, even though he's called a saint. You know, The Bible talks about all believers are saints, and we don't elevate some, we don't venerate, which is what they would say. They venerate but not worship uh, non-Godhead members. In any case, Athanasius writes a really, uh, really fascinating book. It's called On the Incarnation of the Word. And he's going to argue that Christ has to become uh, human for two reasons. So let's see if I can quickly construct the argument of this book here. Or it's really two books put together in one sense. But. So he's going to begin uh, with two human problems. So human problem number one is that uh, we are ignorant of God. And so this is going to lead to a dilemma. Sorry for my handwriting. Um, so the dilemma is, first of all, that um, we learn through our senses. So we learn through senses, like sight, uh, hearing, etc. The other part of the tension, though, part B, is that God is not, in his essence, God is not corporeal. So what does that word mean? It means bodily. All right, so how do we learn? Uh, we learn by seeing things, by hearing things, by touching things, by spelling things. I'm missing one of the five senses. What's the fifth one? Tasting things. Thank you. Uh, it would be a little, I suppose, awkward to talk about that with human relations. In <laughs> any case. But, um, so, but God's not a body. So how do we learn about God? There's a tension. And Athanasius would argue that the incarnation solves the tension because Jesus Christ takes on a body, and then out of grace, he is available to human sight, sound, touch, et cetera. Now, that may not be your first reason and why you think the Incarnation happened, but is it biblical? So, John, the Gospel of John, it stresses how um, no one has seen God at any time, but the Son has declared him, manifested him. First John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the word, in the case of 1 John, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard with our ears, our hands have handled of the word of life. So what Athanasius is stressing is that when someone in first century Israel sees Jesus do a miracle, they're seeing God's power available to their limited sense experience. When they hear Jesus talk about the lost sheep, they're hearing God's love available to their sense experience. When they... So I did hearing, I did sight. Um, I suppose you could say, like, you know, when the the woman touches the hem of Christ's garment and he manifests his love to her, maybe when... Uh, One of the Marys is washing his feet, that they're learning about the compassion of Christ, etc. Actually, probably a better one is Thomas, right? So, doubting Thomas. Put your hands here, even though he doesn't follow through with that in the end. But they're learning about God through sense experience. And so, Athanasius' point is, God condescends to reveal himself to us as humans who learn by sense experience and are finite. Now, you may not have thought that way before, but it's a good reminder that all of God's revelation is always an act of grace that's bringing it down to our level. Like even the inspiration of scripture is God choosing voluntarily out of grace to put his truth into a human language like Hebrew and Greek. And human languages are finite. There's only so many words in the vocabulary, so many ways to construct the grammar. But he has chosen to do that. He has voluntarily limited himself to reveal himself to us. And probably the biggest example is the incarnation. He limits himself to a human body. But All forms of God uh, revealing are forms of his graciousness to us. Let me try this a different way. I don't mean to be at all irreverent. But think before creation, you have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How do they communicate as omniscient beings who don't learn things because they're already all omniscient? It's not like the Father tells us, oh, I didn't think of that one before it's almost like they're all nodding a consensus like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? They don't have to ask the question. Like, you are thinking what I'm thinking, right? Because they don't have to use a human language to communicate. They're omniscient. They're not bodily beings. So all of God's revelation is an act of grace toward us. But the second reason is because uh, we're mortal. So this is the second problem. We die. And the problem here, A, the tension is that... um, that uh, we are rightly, so let's put here, we are rightly condemned. This goes back to Adam and Eve. And so God had promised that if you eat of the tree, you will fall, and you'll be sinners, and after that, there'll be sinners. And so you're like, well, that's terrible. I can't believe that happened. But think through the options here. Like, if God doesn't keep his word, that's not keeping a promise. And then the ruler of the universe is no longer a truthful promise-keeping being. It's actually far worse to collapse the whole moral uh, order of the universe uh, just because you don't want God to keep His promise, right? But the tension on B is, but yet He loves us. Uh, so uh, let's put "we are loved" for lack of better idea here, better wording. Um, and so then the solution is the incarnation: that on the cross, Jesus Christ is mortal for us. He takes our place. He dies for our sins. But out of love, you think of John 3, 16, et cetera, or John 4, and this, the love of God is manifested toward us that Christ became um, our propitiation, our wrath-removing sacrifice. And so that's the second reason. And that's probably where m- many of you would have gone in your own minds, like why is Christ become incarnate? is to die for us. Um, and, and so only as the God-man can he die as our substitute and take care of a problem. So I think many of us would resonate with this part of the argument. You may quibble a little bit. I would personally quibble a little bit with the so-called tension here, I personally wouldn't want to pit God's attributes against each other. His holiness versus his love. I know we haven't, I've preached that way, so I'm pointing fingers at myself, like God's in heaven, he's holy, he's righteous, he has to judge sin, but he's also loving. And I make it sound as if God's wringing his hands, like, what do I do now? What's the? Oh yeah, the solution is the cross. His holiness is completely loving because attributes are 100% of what he is all the time, And his love is completely holy. You can't splice God in pieces and have a pizza pie. And here is holy and here is love. It's all of him all the time. And so I do think we've got to be a little careful how we describe that. But from our human perspective, this is how we sense the tension. Uh, That's Athanasius. And he's really important. If you have a chance, read on If you have, like, you know, a weekend, you don't have much to do, which is probably not true of any of your lives, but uh, read on the incarnation of the word. It's a really easy-to-understand book and really helpful in the history of theology. Um, The great Cappadocians come next, and I'll be really brief with these ones. Once again, later artwork. Um, The picture, there is two of the Cappadocians. Chrysostom is not one of them, but uh, if you're interested here, what you have is you have Basil, and you have Gregory, and you have Gregory, so two Gregories. Two of them are directly related to each other. It's like the, the three musketeers or the three amigos or something of late patristics. Uh, these two are related to each other. This is like a really good friend. And there's much we could say about them, but I'm just going to stress one thing. Uh, they will defend the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Nicaea stressing the full deity of Jesus Christ. And it mentions the Spirit at the end. Like, oh yeah, we also believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe in the church. Or well, they're going to really fight for that uh, because they're fighting... Sorry for the big word here, (laughs) Numatamakwe. If you break down the word, numa is spirit. Uh, The makwe is like uh, fighting, so military. So they're fighting spirit fighters. Because spirit fighters are fighting against the deity of the Holy Spirit. They're like, no, you can't do that. The Holy Spirit is equally God, even as Jesus Christ is fully God. To be fair, there are fewer texts in the New Testament that talk about the Holy Spirit being God or being Lord. But it is there. Can anyone think of a text in which the Holy Spirit is called God or Lord or is described in divine ways or anything? Can you think of any? It was certainly part of the Trinity of Genesis 1. So uh, yeah, we'd say like in the Old Testament, um, what is implied, you can infer like, like let us make man in our image as a plurality. So there'd be various biblical theologians would say that's implying the Trinity, and they'll go further than that in the Old Testament, like holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, but it's not as, um, not as defined, it's not as clear in those texts. I mean, in other words, I'm going to give you an example back. We or our could be five, it could be six, it could be ten, it could be two. So to say it's three um, would be kind of taking later revelation and helping that to understand earlier revelation. So, there's a case in Acts 5 where there's Ananias of fire, and it says that you have lied, not to men, but to God. And it goes on to say, because you have lied to the Holy Spirit, right? So, lying to the Holy Spirit is equated with lying to God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul, every other time, talks about Jesus Christ as Lord. He talks about, and the same Spirit who is the Lord. He used the word Lord of the Spirit. I personally think it's because the Spirit is the manifestation of Christ in the believer. I think it's still tied to Jesus Christ. But he does talk about the Spirit as Lord in 2 Corinthians 3. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit has all kinds of uh, attributes. that are God attributes. So let's just try a couple. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No one can know the mind of God except the Holy Spirit. If you were to get a big word in theology to describe the mind of God, that he knows everything, what would be that word? Omniscient. So now you have no one knows the omniscient mind of God except the Holy Spirit does. So what does that say logically about the Holy Spirit? He's also omniscient. right? Only omniscient being can know omniscience. And so you have some texts like that that would manifest the deity of the Holy Spirit. So they're going to be fighting for uh, the Spirit. They'll also have just some, like, historical reasons. So they'll say, like, well, throughout worship the last couple of centuries, uh, the Spirit's a part of our worship, how we sing, how we pray. And so what they're saying is we've already been treating him divinely as God. Um, like, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, the end of 2 Corinthians as a benediction, Uh, May the Father, Son, and Spirit bless you. And so he's already a part of prayer. He's part of what we would call the ordinances, et cetera. And so they have some other argument they would use. That's a really brief introduction to our three friends. (laughs) Uh, John Chrysostom is our final one here. And so he's actually friends with these guys. Um, But his name means John the Golden Mouth. So Chrysostom means Golden Mouth. He's an amazing preacher. We are past Constantine now. We're like in the 300s. He is the pastor, they'd be called the bishop, at a church over in Antioch, but he is well known for being amazing in his preaching. And the emperor, Constantine hears about it. He's like, I want that guy. (laughs) And I want him in my town. I want him in Constantinople. John's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't know if I feel called to Constantinople. I kind of like it here in Antioch. Is almost like forcibly taken from Antioch to Constantinople. I don't don't know if I would call it kidnapping per se, but he is uh, maneuvered uh, from one to the other, and you know the church is thriving under his preaching. He's actually what we call very expository. By that, I mean he's preaching through books of the Bible. We have his sermons on, like, Paul's epistles. One after the other, just working through Paul's epistles, much like Pastor Lance currently is expositing Romans. So he's working his way through a book of the Bible. Chrysostom was like that. But he's also highly trained in Greek rhetoric. And... Um, one thing of interest that's true of all these three and Chrysostom and Augustine that we'll talk about next week is although they grew up in Christian homes or in the case of Augustine, at least one parent, his mom was a Christian, we know they were not baptized as infants. It's interesting because these are heroes to Catholics and Orthodox people but they're not abiding by their system. Does that make sense? We know they weren't baptized. In fact, we know, I think it was like 19 years old is when Chrysostom was baptized. Um, and so... He is this famous preacher, but then Constantine realizes he, he, uh, he actually, what's the metaphor? He, he bit off a little bit too much than he could handle type thing because Christendom is also very bold. And he just preaches like he sees it. <laughs> and he starts talking from sermons about like James and, you know, if someone comes to your assembly and they're poor, how do you treat them? If someone comes in, they're rich, how do you treat them? Those types of texts. And he points out, the empress and her uh, consorts, like the ladies of the court, he's like, look at you, and you're dressed in all this amazing robes and jewelry, and if you were to sell all that stuff, think how many Christian slaves you could redeem. Like you could buy back slaves or Christians from their owners, and they could have freedom, and you're wasting it on clothes and jewelry. Well, that doesn't go off very well. So he gets kicked out of Constantinople. He's exiled. And um, and I didn't mention this. Athanasius was exiled multiple times, by the way, by the emperor. But uh, Christum is exiled. And then an earthquake happens and other things. And if you're like an ancient mindset prone to superstition, what do you think? Oh, we kind of made God angry. I think he was the good guy, the good preacher. Let's call him back. So they call him back. Um, But, yeah, he is a fascinating preacher. And in the text that we have, he He even says fun stuff like, hey, we have a bigger crowd this week than last week. I heard there were horse races going on and chariots, and uh, there were fights going on last Sunday. I know where you guys were last Sunday, but I'm glad you're here this Sunday. He even calls out people for not paying attention during his sermons. He's just a very bold preacher, um, but also a very good expositor of the word. I wouldn't fully agree with everything he teaches, but he's just a fascinating figure. Uh, if you want to learn more about him, I have an article if you wish to learn more about him. But we're out of time, so maybe a takeaway today uh, would be to really think our way through the importance of Christ being fully human and fully God, and, uh, and to seek to be bold in proclaiming that to others. So let's go ahead and break up in our uh, prayer groups, and if you have further questions, you can ask me afterwards, and um, yeah, so break up in your prayer groups, and have some time of prayer. Next week, I think, is our last week of this week six. So if there's something you really want talked about, let me know and I'll try to incorporate it next week. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to God be the glory.